Minisode 2, it's time for Minisode 2, Minisode number 2. What's up, Scott? It's time for Minisode 2. What number is it? Minisode 2, it's time for the second Minisode. Welcome back. Welcome back to King of the Shill. It's time for the second installment of our non-linear <laughs> Minisode <Yeah>. series. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, I'm excited about uh, this week because I kind of... I think I'm I'm done with the first week Minnesota jitters that I had last week, and I'm I'm ready to really just pull out my biggest baddest Minnesota gun this week. What about yeah. you, Scott? My my biggest baddest Minnesota gun is always out, and I get told to put it away in public, and I got it detained <laughs> a few times, but I cannot and will not be stopped. So well. Well, that's why they called you. That's why they call you MS Scott, right? For yeah. for Minnesota Scott, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, welcome back to King of the Shill. My name is Chris. I'm Scott. If this is your first time joining us, you're joining us on a mini-sode. In fact, we are in between some shills, and we've got a shill coming up this week, this coming Friday, which we will get to shortly. I'm very, very excited about it. But we are in between shills, and thus we still must entertain the masses, and more importantly, entertain ourselves. So you've caught us in a mini-sode uh off of our our normal sort of uh beaten path here with with the shills um and uh and the last time we got together last week we talked about some games and i think scott you want to you want to tell me about uh what's it called bravely default Two. yes bravely default Two. so last week i finished a jrpg i started another jrpg in the meantime, since that mini-sode, I finished that JRPG, and now I'm on to another one. So you can notice a trend in what I've been of playing. Of JRPGs. Some, yeah, JRPGs. So I'm trying to clear out my backlog. And JRPG stands for? Japanese role-playing game. This is Dragon Quest. This is Final Fantasy. This is Persona. This is Shin Megami Tensei. This is Pokemon, technically, is a JRPG. So. Definitely a, a JRPG. Um I think I don't have a whole lot of experience with JRPGs uh, outside of, I mean, Pokemon when I was a kid, but I only ever played blue. I never, never really played any mm-hmm. Pokemon beyond that outside of Pokemon stadium. Um, and other than that, it's really been pretty light for me on the JRPG. So I always really enjoy whenever you got a fresh one for me to check out because someday I'm going to get into these because aesthetically they just grab me. But for some reason I just cannot ever find myself to invest more time than like, just a couple hours and enough to just thumb my nose at it and move on. So I'm excited for what, for whatever bravely default is. I've never heard of that series before. Yeah, and it I sounds mean, like this JR- is a sequel. JRPGs are fun for people like me that don't mind sinking in a lot of time, just kind of digesting a story. And I mean, the gameplay, if you can't handle turn-based stuff, there's not much, to, there's not much to grab you here, but um, bravely default to speaking about this one specifically square Enix game. This is a throwback, uh, the Bravely Default series to older games. They've been doing this a lot recently, making games that are kind of callbacks to games that were just coming out when I was a preteen and you were a teenager. Games yeah. like Final Fantasies four through seven and actually beyond probably eight and nine, too. And yeah. uh, there's even some 16 bit ones coming out. So 
my high school girlfriend was obsessed with Final Fantasy VIII because she had the hots for Squall. Every nerd girl in high school was obsessed with Squall. <laughs> is, it, is it the gun blade? No, it's just that he's pretty. It's uh, just it, that he's a, that he's a hot it's man. It's literally just that he's pretty. There's nothing else to Squall. Man. There's there's nothing else to that character. He is just angsty and pretty. That's it. Yeah. I, I, I hear a lot of people talk about how that's their least favorite Final Fantasy. <laughs> probably it's not mine but it's probably close because there are some pretty garbage ones too but anyway yeah anyway bravely default 2 is a callback to the old days of squall and cloud and all these different characters cecil and final fantasy 2 or 4 depending on what region you're in the gimmick of the series this is actually the third game because there was Bravely Default and Bravely Second, which was the direct sequel. This is now a whole new whole new cast. Oh, so Bravely Default 2 is not a direct sequel to Bravely no. Default. No. Got it. It's got to be confusing, just like every other JRPG. Yeah, of so, course. Uh, the gimmick of this system is the Brave and Default system. So if you defend in this game, I take it you've... You, you understand the concept in a JRPG of hitting like the defend action. Basically, nothing yeah. I want to mm-hmm. do this turn. I'll, let's raise my defense temporarily. Yeah, right? exactly. Min- mitigate some damage. Yeah. In a lot of games, that's basically just passing a turn. In Bravely Default, defending is called defaulting. And when you default, you gain a it's a BP. I think it's a battle point. But okay. either way, BP is like a stored turn. BP can go anywhere from zero to typically three or negative three. And it's basically stored or a deficit of turns. So you can default up to three and then brave three times and take four turns in a single go. Or you don't have to default at all. You can have a BP of zero. You can be like net normal and brave three times and take a deficit of three turns. You have to wait three, uh, three full turns before you'll be able to act again, but you get four turns right off the bat. So a lot of the game systems are balanced around this economy of knowing when to defend and when to attack and managing your turn economy. This sounds very tabletopy. Like this has a very sort of board game kind of motif to it a little bit at least to hear the way that you explain it to me with your words yeah with your special like, words so it that's definitely true because almost all jrpgs like we're talking 95 to 99 percent here are inspired by dragon quest which was inspired by dungeons and dragons yeah i wouldn't say the pre- the kind of pressing of turns here not to call back the persona and shimigami tensei but like the the turn economy here is not necessarily i would say board gamey but i know what you mean in that it is stepping outside of what you would typically do in a jrpg which is you have like an established turn order and it's it's mixes and matches a lot of different jrpg ideas like kind of the active time battle, the ATB of Final Fantasy VII, where you watch uh, your turn fill up as like a unit of time in real time. Yeah. And you can have a speed stat that can make you take more turns than someone who's slower. All these different things. There's a job system. You can uh, There's all these different jobs you can level up and they have different abilities. But the really, I think, the crux 
the board gaminess is living on the edge like like in any jrpg like i mentioned in our last mini sode the problem with a jrpg is that it's a numbers based system if you are maximizing numbers you are by nature minimizing mechanics right if you right. if every single attack does more damage than a creature has life you just can't interact with the mechanics in the same way anymore right 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 where something like persona was good because as long as you weren't maximizing numbers and you were like re retaining kind of a, a normal kind of power level there were very fun mechanics to interact with and right. the problem with xenoblade where that wasn't really the case bravely default is a great example of one of the games that it has all the benefits of Persona, where it's fun. You have almost this gambling, this risk management minigame of... Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Like, I don't think you're going to survive me taking four straight turns right now. Right, yeah. So let me try that, right? Because better to kill you outright than to let you take any turns at all, right? That's definitely where I sort of pull why it feels like a board game to me, because, like especially in and i don't play a whole lot of jrpgs so i just could be completely fucking off <laughs> off base here so keep me honest but like i just feel like um that sort of term that anybody listening will get used to here wet marbles that sort of sort of like wet marbles thing of like i'm gonna give you something to sort of hold in your hands to juggle and figure out how to carry right yeah is like it really pulls from like i don't really see that in a whole lot of modern gaming systems um, and so, like I said, maybe it's just not I don't play enough JRPGs, but I like that mental dilemma of like, like you said, I don't think that you can survive four turns. So I'm going to let you take these because I'm going to get four and I'm just going to trounce you. Prove me wrong. Yeah. Right. So it, it's that where I'm, I'm taking it even a step further because I agree. I think about JRPGs. The reason why I can handle turn based systems where some people may not is that I view JRPGs as puzzles that I can control the difficulty of yeah, if I right. want to go grind because the puzzles are boring and I don't want to interact with them anymore. I can, if I want to remain under leveled so the puzzles are more difficult and enter really complex wet marble situations where I have to fight an enemy that is way stronger than me, I can do that too. But one of the nice things about bravely default too, this is not common in a lot of JRPGs. Uh, some good examples of this would be like, Disgaea, but even even kind of less so there. Bravely Default expects and rewards you for maximizing numbers by breaking mechanics. Oh, so, so interesting. So when, it like goads you into breaking the game. Yeah. So uh, slight spoilers. I am not going to mention anything story related. I am going to talk about one mid game boss in abstract. I'm not going to mention anything about what they are. I'm going to mention a class in abstract and I'm going to mention the post game in abstract. So in the second chapter, there are four or five chapters of this game. I'm not quite sure. But in the second chapter of a game, you fight a boss. The bosses in this game are typically people that have what is called an asterisk. It is a magic stone that when you hold it, you can be basically a, a final fantasy class. So this person oh. was holding an asterisk from that class and the the class in question is a damage dealing class. This person was not a tank. 
not a healer, not anything like that. It was just like a damage healing person. Straight right? out raw damage. Gonna yes. put on the numbers, gonna yeah. gonna put it to you. So at this point, I had a combo of jobs, abilities, and the brave and default system that I wanted to try. And upon noticing what this class was, this person was, I being a Final Fantasy fan, I know this class. I know it's probably a glass cannon. I found a way where I could start, I could start battle, have my main character, my personal stand-in being a support class. And I just immediately braved three times. So I was taking four turns and I like set up a um, like a shield wall. So I would like protect my allies and I gave all of my BP, which is an ability like a, a, one of the abilities one of the classes have. You can give your BP even at a deficit to another character. I gave all of my BP to a character in my team that was my raw physical damage dealer. So she started on her first turn with three BP. By the time I had gotten to her, I had buffed her physical attack like to the maximum amount. Right. So she took eight consecutive turns. <laughs> oh, sick. And then on each hit of that eight consecutive turns was doing yeah. like a truckload of damage. The, I didn't even see what the boss did. Oh, my God. So you just, just completely fucking trounced them. Yeah. And awesome. that felt good. That that was a rewarding moment. That was I used my brain to overcome a situation. Yeah, that's uh, it's really the main reason why I love immersive sims so much is that just that gameplay loop of, you know, break me. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Break me off in your ass and show me how, how show me how you can do do the things that the develop that the developers never thought you could. And it is just such an insanely rewarding scenario to put yourself in as a game player, right? As the user. So, like as somebody that plays a lot of JRPGs, do you find having the ability to do something like that? Is is that in, in that scope and to that degree? Is it uncommon for other jrpgs or does it just hit that much more and bravely default to this way it, it's uncommon I'll, i will say that because again a lot of what you're running up against in a lot of games like you can break persona pretty hard but the game doesn't expect you to really except like maybe one optional super boss or, or so right yeah you can break like a good example, Final Fantasy X had a lot of really broken stuff in it. I remember um, you could break every Final Fantasy, but just stuff off the top of my head. It is very common for JRPGs to have stuff that generically speaking is broken. There are not many games that explore beyond that boundary of, well, what if, right? We made systems that explicitly either expect you to break them or um, like this is like we, we make the systems resilient enough where it's not just like you got the big number and you did the thing you if you are ex the experimental type and right. you can you can you want to explore the system. It's not just a big number or something like that. It's like. You're, you're changing the way the game expects you to interact with it. It's it's a it's definitely unique. There are games 
So Disgaea, I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. It's it's D-I-S-G-A-E-A. It's uh-huh. a long running. I, I always because just because with these with these types of names, I always read them incorrectly. And I always thought it was like Disagia. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 something like that. I'm pretty sure it's Disgaea. I've played all the Disgaea games. Um, that's a subgenre of JRPG called a T T T or TJRPG, a tactical RPG, basically. Um, yeah, that's the, the square grids and you move characters around and things like that. So mm-hmm. is that the way Final Fantasy Tactics is? Yes. Cool. Mm-hmm. That's a tactical RPG. So Disgaea, I would not. It's a good example of a game preparing its systems to be resilient, but not necessarily rewarding expectation in the same same way. So in Disgaea, you can make characters level nine thousand nine hundred and ninety nine. They can, oh, Jesus they, can, Christ. they can do bi- they can do billions of damage. Oh, my God. Uh, there, there are bosses in the game, like post game secret stuff that expect you to be doing billions of damage to them. Jesus um, Christ. You can level up every single item in the game, even the equipment. And those go up to like level nine hundred and ninety nine. It's a resilient system, right? Yeah. If you right. figure out a good way to farm experience and shoot yourself up to nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine. Fucking have at it. Yeah. Congrats. Right. right? But it's not a system like necessarily like Bravely Default where it's like. I didn't power grind myself. I just noticed that four different things interacted in this way that would cause a nuclear explosion. Right. They let you color outside of the lines. I noticed that my damage attackers class. Has a passive where it doesn't care about defense and it just generally does a truckload of damage. I noticed that I had a class that could buff physical attack like absurdly high. And I noticed that I had a class that could give BP basically turns to another person. So I just did some quick arithmetic and the the resulting solution to that equation was I didn't even see what the boss did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. it's, It's just little rewarding things like that that are they're more uncommon than they are common. That's cool. I think the the thing for me with that kind of stuff is that like generally when I'm playing games, I like to do it in a way where it's like I can just sort of like flick my brain off and get stoned and like fucking lose myself in whatever kind of game I'm playing, you know, whether and and it's actually kind of funny because that sounds in presentation when I when I present that information that way. Kind of sounds like, oh, you you know, you just kind of want to fucking zone out and zombie yourself out and, you know, kind of not have to think but that couldn't be further from the truth because one of one of my favorite things to play whenever i am all stoned up is fighting games which requires a lot of thinking the way that we play them so so you know it's not that i don't want to think right it's just that i enjoy sort of an experience that i can hit that and to harken back to last week that flow state in and this sort of at least the way that you're describing it to me, not in a gameplay sense, but in just like a like a strategizing perspective, it sounds like you can really manipulate the data that the game gives you to a point where you can almost like intellectually enter that flow state with this game. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the case. Um, it's not like a persona type flow where you're just like zooming your way Hit, through enemies. You're hitting yeah, all the attacks. Boom, yeah, boom. It's yeah, flowing, right? It's more of a if you're the type of person that can get lost in deep thought and likes thought experiments and testing stuff out, because like it's worth noting that was basically the first time I had tried it. I did it before, 
but nothing was strong enough to survive eight consecutive turns of my damage dealers full love and devotion if you know what i'm saying right like things would just collapse immediately so i got to the boss and i'm like well i know it fundamentally works but like i don't know what the result's gonna be and lo and behold like the boss evaporated but i mean it we're i think we're gonna transition to a fighting game conversation here in the flow state there but the other thing too is it's nice to have something to keep you going especially in games that are very long form like this like for me um the story in bravely default i think somewhat intentionally is very simplistic it's a callback to older games it's not a super budgeted game right it's I would imagine is a mid tier game in terms of budget for Square Enix, right? Right. It, it doesn't look shoddy, but it, it's clear it wasn't given like the blockbuster treatment. Said another way, Final Fantasy 15 clearly had a much larger budget than Bravely Default yeah. 2. Bravely right. Default 2 is still better than Final Fantasy 15, <laughs> but it's it's not something where I can like really get lost in the story. I've seen like every plot development so far from a mile away. Right. Yeah. The sure. characters That's are, not the point, though. Yeah. The characters are very cool, but it's not like the uh, grand sweeping story. They're kind of just the heroes of light and they have like kind of little cute interactions. But it's not like I, I know next to nothing about my main character and I'm halfway through the game. Sure. Right. It's, right. It's yeah. not that's not what's keeping me going. It's always finding the new job getting the new job leveling up leveled up and then saying to myself okay now how can i break the game i just i just got a new job this afternoon before recording and i was looking at some of the things it could do and i was like holy shit this changes completely how i think about this particular type of fight right yeah so so theory crafters take note yes and does is this switch exclusive i think so yeah Cool. I, I mean, you'll have to show it to me post-COVID sometime. I mean, eventually we are going to have an in-person recording session. And someday you will show me all the things yeah. <laughs> that we talk about in the mini-sodes. Hopefully sooner rather than later. We got well, one of one of four vaccines in the many-folds house. Well, that's good. I, uh, I, I mean, spoiler alert, I'm going to be shilling you on at least one type of JRPG. Moving forward, it's probably going to be either Persona or a Shin Megami Tensei game, just because I think you would jive with them the best. But sure, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely I'll I'll bring over the Bravely defaults and I'll show you how to default and brave with the best of them. Well, especially because one thing that I can't wait to do whenever we're back together and recording in person for the first time. But I'm going to say again and give the illusion that we've always recorded in person because we've always recorded in person. Right. Yes, absolutely. I love I loved fucking fighting that new Tekken character today, dude. Um, did you? <laughs> so, so listen. So Scott and I, Scott and I, as mentioned several times. Oh, corrections corner time. Yeah. yeah. Before we get into this, because I almost did it again. Um, corrections corner. Belie does not mean what I thought it meant. <laughs> oh yeah, it's not a big deal. But he's it's, it's kept well, saying it. I'm like, I don't well, think no, that means so what you think I have it means. To, I have to clarify on record because it's 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 a great reason why I think it means the way the the thing that it does is because in my head I'm I'm picturing like right vocabulary is complex for people yeah. right vocabulary is complex especially for somebody like me that's got the level of fucking ADD that I have so vocabulary in a lot of times in a lot of cases for me looks like 
imagining the thing that I'm trying to convey and then pulling a word from that image in my head. Right. Right. So I'm thinking we're di- we're digging up a corpse that we have no doubt beat to death and we're just going to do another go around on it. So I'm thinking exhume. Right. Yeah. I said belie. And here's why. Uh, I've got a really uh, I've got a, a band uh, from my uh, yesteryears, from my my youth, from my teenage years, a local band in here at Pittsburgh here that is extremely influential in my childhood. They're called Belie My Burial. And so anytime I would think exhume, I would think berry. And anytime I would think berry, I would think burial, even though I love raspberries. And every time I would think burial, I would think Belie My Burial. So my brain just made this really sort of roundabout connection to, to, to saying that word. So corrections corner, what I meant to say was exhume and one thing that we are going to exhume several, several times on the show is how much we love fighting games. We've alluded to it a, a little bit, um, but we've never really gone full into just how much our love goes. I don't think today is that day for it, but we do want to talk about the new Tekken character. Yeah, so uh, fighting games are like a cringy part of my personality i'm like the guy that makes star wars part of their personality except it's fighting games which <laughs> yeah I dude i mean i mean we we talk about this all the time i got told the other day that i thought way too hard about mortal kombat story so yeah <laughs> it's it it's just something that the games have always really spoken to me i'm not even remotely good at a lot of them i've only ever played some with the intention like the games that I've played online to a degree where I've had the intention of being good, I can count on one hand and it's even yeah. been recent stuff. Like I played street. I really started playing online and seriously with street fighter four. Um, I started playing like DBFC a lot with you guys. Uh, I've been playing a lot of Tekken online, which is miserable, but that's a conversation yeah. for another time. <laughs> it but so is like, it, it's more of an appreciation for the thing as an art form. Like I really love watching fighting game esports. I know yeah. all the stories I like, I, one of the things I told you like to give you context when we were first talking about it, of how much I know about mortal Kombat, is I named all the six Kami Dogus yeah. uh, in the mortal Kombat <laughs> yeah. universe. Which is Which, like, like I'm, I'm a huge fucking Mortal Kombat fan to the point where like we can have discussions about the lore and it, yeah. they, they will be coherent. I can't even name all six commie Doug. <laughs> so like that, that's kind of the level of obsession we're at. But Chris and I have been playing a lot of Tekken. We moved on a little bit from DBFC by my request because I purchased a new hitbox controller. It's a fighting game controller that's all buttons and it yeah, was making this- my brain hurt. In Dragon Ball Z. So I was like, Chris, let's play some Tekken. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, this fucking hitbox controller, like I have thought very, very often about getting a stick. Right. Uh-huh. And when I say a fight stick, for those of you that aren't familiar with the terminology, what I mean is essentially think about your arcade cabinet fighting game, Street Fighter, you know, Marvel vs. Capcom, any arcade cabinet, really. Ninja Turtles, X-Men, all the classics, Simpsons. All you, I know you, I know all Yins played Simpsons out there yeah. at Pizza Hut, right? <laughs> so, um, so like, it's basically just an at-home version of that, which is a stick with a knob on the end of it, or just, just the stick if you want the Korean stick. Um, and then buttons, right? Like, yeah. eight, eight buttons, right? Face buttons like that. But Scott has got the hitbox, which is 
all buttons. Very yes. popular with Smash Brothers, from what I understand. The Smash Box, I would argue it's not popular. A lot of oh, a lot okay. of people a lot of people say that it's like cheating, which people oh. say that people say the hitbox is cheating. And after playing enough Tekken with the hitbox, I can totally understand why they would say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So because what's interesting is like because I play on your typical PlayStation controller yeah. when we play mm-hmm. any fighting game, really, but specifically talking about Tekken here. And so like Tekken being a 3D plane, right, instead of just the, the 2D that you're used to, like the Street Fighter where you can do the front flips or Mortal Kombat, you know, or even Marvel versus Capcom and, and Dragon Ball Fighters for that matter. But Tekken being jumps really aren't that important and you can sidestep 3D plane. Um, I use a PlayStation DualShock 4 controller where my left thumb controls the d-pad where i sidestep and move forward and back but scott's controller the hitbox is all buttons and i have no fucking idea how you get that through your head it it takes a while uh the the sentence that actually got me to understand it was what do you jump with in mario when you play mario chris what finger do you use to jump use your right index finger yeah no i use my right thumb oh right thumb rather that's I, that's yeah. what i meant i don't know why oh. i said index finger <laughs> yeah, yeah okay i'm not the hold, other I index know, finger i don't know how you would hold your controller to do that but yeah, yeah the I, other I index my finger. thumb so right. yeah i jump with my right thumb i i'm playing mario in my brain that I, makes a I, lot of fucking sense i actually tried to play dbfc recently with a controller to go back to a dual shock i stopped using stick a couple years ago because my carpal tunnel it was just too bad. I couldn't really do it anymore. And it hurt. I could not jump. The concept really? of using my left thumb to hit up and jump, like just completely trained itself out of my brain. Yeah. That's crazy. Cause yeah. like we, we, we've, we've talked about it before, but a uh, content creator on YouTube that we really like is Corey gaming. And he really sort of dives into these analytical aspects of fighting games it to like behavioral analysis and everything. I, I, I personally cannot recommend that channel enough because it's so fucking interesting. Okay. You know, the flow state that we talked about, you know, like comes from one of his videos that we both learned about it from. Um, he goes into stuff like, you know, why do people like teams, right? Yeah. Like, why do we like teams? Why do we like to watch teams fight? Whether that is team fighting games like Marvel versus Capcom or, or Dragon Ball, where you have three people on a team. Or something like Team Tekken, where it's a 1v1 fighting game, but the structure isn't Chris versus Scott. It's Chris and his four teammates versus Scott and his four teammates, right? Yeah. And then there's like a, a switching system that goes into it, and there are pro tournaments. So even stuff like, why do we like teams? What are what are the sort of the things that are influencing our behavior behind, you know, liking the things that we like? This is sort of a lot of the reason why I like fighting games, right? And this is like right in that sort of style where it's like, why can't I get it through my head that that I can jump with my left thumb now? Right. Yeah, it's all it's it's the idea of like with with the box. The reason I like it is. it, It it also changes the way, at least for me, that you think about moving when you move in most video games, especially if you're using an analog stick, you're thinking about things as a a continuous motion a lot of the times right this is one of the benefits of moving with an analog stick as as opposed to uh, not necessarily you could do it with wasd too but like moving with an analog stick especially aiming with an analog stick it's continuous and a mouse is discrete right right 
when you're when I was playing fighting games with a stick, not that the buttons don't end up doing the same thing, but it's just my brain thinks about it differently. Uh, 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 when you move the stick, when you move your thumb on the D-pad and you hold it there, right? There was a part of my brain that was keeping that as kind of a continuous motion. Right. And I wasn't really thinking beyond the directions that my thumbs were moving to do like a sure you can. A sure you can, a flying uppercut, a dragon punch is forward, down, down, forward, punch. I right. wasn't putting a lot of thought into that beyond the literal motion my thumb makes to do it, which is basically forward and then like a quarter circle forward, right? Which yeah. is the cheat way that Street Fighter lets you do it now. But now on the hitbox, I literally have to think about it as forward down down forward because it's got to be precise and accurate yeah and it's changed the way i think about movement too which is really interesting but so like and in what way though like how how has it changed how you think about movement like is it is it one of those things where it's like instead of being able to rely on just sort of my like knee-jerk reactions and being able to react through my left thumb now i've got to be calculated in how i decide to enact my movements yeah it's less uh like a and b brain or whatever right like i i i move less because i have to think more about each individual movement that's really interesting each movement is more deliberate yeah and since and do you feel like you come to have a better understanding of your characters through ha- having to control them yeah, that way. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's interesting. I like that. Um, especially because, like, you know, like we just like we alluded to, there's a new Tekken character out today. And uh Scott and I had a chance to to fuck around a little bit. I haven't used her. Scott played her. Uh, I stuck with my my waifu Julia Chang. <laughs> um, but uh but I I have thoughts about fighting her. I want you to tell me your thoughts about like what did you think about her in general? Uh, she's clearly first. So first of all, before we talk about gameplay stuff, she's very cool. Um, I was kind of, I've kind of explained to Chris, I'm not going to talk about it here. A lot of the like Tekken lore stuff and some of the history I've been playing Tekken since Tekken three on the PS one. I get every game. I play all the story modes. I've occasionally got to play it with friends. Right. But, um, Recently, Tekken has had kind of a trend with its female characters of moving away more from like the cool killer type woman that's like super strong into yeah. like cutesy kind of anime inspired stuff like Josie and yeah. uh, Lucky Chloe. Lucky come Chloe. Right. And Which it, are like they're they're like uh, like you like you said, like cutesy and kind of like lolly sort of like, you know, kawaii kind of kind of deal. Like Lucky Chloe is literally a Japanese idol streamer that wears like a cat ear headband. It a, is a truly, pink, truly insufferable. Yeah. Pink parka with kitten hands and she break dances. It's, and it's like, just and Go there's ahead. nothing there's nothing wrong with that if you if you like it right like I, that's not what i'm saying but what i'm yeah. saying is is like i much prefer like the um the uh the uh the much more serious roles right yeah. like the much more like not even necessarily super strong or like you know s- you know super womanized you know yeah. what i mean but like well, just, just like some serious characters that look yeah. like they could actually whoop someone's ass. Well, right? it's, at, it's down to preference. Like it just misses yeah. me completely, but it's also just kind of tonally dissonant. Like yeah, jo- right. joke, joke characters in Tekken are the bears, a kangaroo, a literal woodblock <laughs> demon, like and Yoshimitsu. Negan. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and Negan. like, yeah, it's like, 
they're they're the bears are goofy because they have like fart moves and they hit you with fish but it's still a bear and like jack the kangaroo or even gone like the the dragon the namco dragon right yeah, like right. uh they're they're all goofy but they're just kind of like weird bizarre animal characters it's right. not like and then they're the, the the comedy is that they're fighting like a hachi mishima right and his fundoshi right. the the yeah. underwear looking thing he has right this 80 yeah, year old right. man in underwear um <laughs> but yeah anyway lydia is like a, a step in a new direction which i like not yeah. that like kunimitsu came back with kind of a new look and she looks really cool so there's yeah. that but L- she- lydia's lydia's look is great because she's got this like um sort of like super um black ops looking suit on right mm-hmm. that's like her base layer so like the top half of her torso is like this uh sleeves cut off like almost like navy seal morph suit kind of like super tactical kind of deal and then she's just got like a gi yeah that for her for her for her pants but like the top half of it is like yeah, it's done and sort it, of tied around her waist. It looks fucking awesome. It's the most extra Under Armour ever yes. worn by a human <laughs> being. And then, yeah, yeah. Her, her karate gi is half off. She she basically has like the um, the when you put your hoodie around your waist. Yeah, she has, exactly. she has that for the top of her gi. The fucking and then she's Eddie just, Vedder grunge look. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You so, know, tied around your waist and everything. So she looks sick. Her moves look sick. She she flows in a really interesting way. Every so she's a karateka. I think that's how you pronounce that. She 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 practices Polish karate. She's the prime minister of Poland, which is weird. Yeah, in the universe, but, she is the prime minister of Poland. But all of her moves are super precise and deliberate. Like her jabs all start from like the neutral position and then she like goes right back to it she gives a little key eye shout with everything she does she has these yeah. like great parry animations and she's like it, it's just a really tight presentation it's not like super extra or over the top it just looks like everything she's doing hurts and yeah, that's she, that's good she looks very cool and strong right like yeah. she looks like like I, like i said like you know there's nothing wrong with like the cutesy fun like weird characters but like there's just something so great to me about a character that um and this is kind of partly why i mentioned this to you earlier but she's got a secondary costume that's like sort of like a pantsuit that's like it looks like um like an agent carter suit almost right <laughs> Where um, I love stuff like that. I love skins, especially in fighting games like that, where it's like, you know, um, you're used to seeing like, okay, so uh, for example, um, uh, Guile, right? Like Guile's, everybody knows what Guile looks like. His default skin, he looks just like a soldier, right? Uh, Army tank top, you know, camo pants, army boots and big flat yeah, well, egregious he, looks like, he looks like Polnareff, but you're not going to get that one. We'll we'll talk about that. <laughs> I sometime. won't get that one. Yes, no. but <laughs> um, but but yeah. So everybody knows what guy looks like, right? And like, I love his skin in Street Fighter Five, where he's in his like dress blues, right? Yeah. Because like, I just love those alternate takes on like this is this like hyper realized fighting game character that's doing all these crazy martial arts, but they have a real job in universe yeah. right mm-hmm. and he, and this is what they look like so like even her default skin of like the super tactical like combat uh under armor being underneath 
of this karate gi that's just sort of loosely pulled down. Yeah. I think adds so much oh, to her flavor, right? It's good. It's a good kind of like tonal, not even tonal dissonance. It's a good kind of change too, because like Kunimitsu, the character yeah. released just before her, has like drip. She looks yeah. like she she looks like she just walked out of a Supreme and she's a ninja. Right. Or like yeah. Leroy. Leroy is perhaps the coolest looking Tekken character created in maybe the series' entire history. Yeah, he's black dynamite. <laughs> yeah, he's 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 literally like eight amazing things stapled together, but he also is a little over the top, right? Because right. he again, like he has drip. Right? right. Whereas she's just like, no, I'm a I'm a karate practitioner. It's like Paul, right? Paul it, wears a yeah. karate gi, but right? Hers is just like this sleek, modern, like hyper focused look at it. Right. It's not it's not goofy. Paul. Good. She literally looks like you just walked into her dojo and you were like, you want to spar? And she was like, well, I was just about to finish up. But sure. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's just like it, it just adds that extra sort of like hook to the character style that really makes me go like, ooh, I want to try her because. I know a lot of people, you know, a lot of people that play fighting games and everybody has played fighting games at some point in your life. If you don't actively play them now, you got your fucking ass whooped in Street Fighter or Mortal Kombat at some point in your lifetime. Right. Right. So you you know exactly what I say, what I'm talking about when I say 90 percent of what I pick in fighting games has to do with the way the character looks. I don't give a shit how they play. They got to look cool. Well, this is the thing, too. It's the, the media is so skewed. I think it's one of the last things I'll say before I I talk about how she plays, because this is a good segue. The media that a a lot of media that comes out about fighting games is skewed because the people that are most passionate about it are the people in the fighting game community, the FGC, professional players and people that are take competitive competing very seriously, whether that be online or in tournaments. Right. Yeah. And as a result, it can appear that most people do look at things like freight like even i do it because like when i when i try to get to good at dbz i look up videos of people playing i look up my frame data right i learn my block strings that kind of thing but um the the idea of like well you got to choose a top tier or whatever right right most people don't do that like the, the, the everyone from casual to just the people that don't give a shit that still play all the time yep they choose based on appearance too I, right. the characters I'm playing right now in Tekken, man, like they're, they're all just the ones that I think look sick. You know what I yeah, mean? Dude. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's Miguel. Got, Miguel yeah. is dope. Miguel speaks to me on a spiritual level. Yeah. Just a belligerent Spanish man that doesn't, that doesn't, <laughs> doesn't do anything. That's like a half measure. He, he kicks with his whole leg. He slams his arms down in a cross formation onto you. It's like, I'm not sure what is more brutal, his actual super move, which is called a rage art in Tekken 7, or the absolutely cutting Spanish that he flings at you before he hits you with it. Yeah. It's it's it sounds it's awful, right? Like it's yeah. just like, oh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get my head caved in here, huh? <laughs> yeah. I like I like his kind of key eyes too. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's yeah, he's great. Uh he's awesome. But but uh but you were saying yeah, so just the gameplay. Yeah, talking briefly about the gameplay because I want to hear your thoughts about fighting her because I think you came up with some good solutions for the very shitty Lydia I was playing at that point. But like uh, she seems very good. Um, I don't know if she seems immediately as good as some characters that were really busted like Leroy, Falk and Rom, Marduk on Julia. launch. Yeah, I would say her strengths are 
Obviously, she has a lot of good options. She has good mix up. Her damage seems just absolutely out of control. You were hitting me for a lot. I was doing the most basic. I didn't even know how to like screw like how to so how to continue my combos for like the first 75 percent of what we were fighting because I didn't really do any like lab time with her. And I was still doing like over a quarter of your life bar, like probably 60 or 70 damage combos, which are not not free in Tekken. Right. You have to work for a little bit for stuff like that. And I'm sure it only goes up from there. If I knew what I was doing, I could be taking half your life bar more easily. And yeah, that seems to be probably where she's at. She has cool parries that look very visually stylish and I think are a little more interesting to interact with than some of the other parries. I don't know. They might be super degenerate. We'll we'll see as time goes on. But she was just she was very fun to play. Like I said, she feels snappy, too. Like it's fun to throw out a jab like a kind of like a death fist and her just go like her and like it's just that like kind of that one inch punch motion of bruce lee of just the arm goes in and out it's not like this over exaggerated thing it's just precision combat she's fun to fight too in that um frustrating to fight but fun to fight too in that um a lot of that stuff is high risk high reward right like Mm -hmm. it, it it once once I got down to the point of being able to tell when you were going to throw those death punches, those one inch punches, when you were going to go low, that's really like my personal thing with Tekken is that I can I feel like I succeed whenever I am able to um, put myself in the mindset of I just my problem is, is I have to pay attention enough. Right. And yeah. That's my problem with all fighting games is that um I, my mind tends to wander, my, my ADD kicks in, but when I really start to focus and pay attention, my favorite thing about her is that she trains you when you're fighting against her to really watch for tells because of the huge damage payoffs and because of the fact that when you are able to block, when something she tries doesn't pay off, like I was telling you before, she knocks the opponent away when they block when you block one of her attacks in a lot of in a lot of cases she'll knock you a couple couple feet back right and with a certain character i me playing julia chang who is very good from those mid-range um, areas because she can close the gap well she's got good mix up with those dashes and it was just really fun to sort of see how different it was for me to try and approach that from being pushed back Versus just flat out blocking something like with one of the other characters you play and immediately converting that into a throw. Yeah. She's cool. Yeah, it's I am interested to see how she affects the meta landscape. This is probably the last DLC Tekken 7 is going to get. We're probably not going to see anything till till Tekken 8. And it's definitely been a trend in Tekken 7 that the DLC is like busted a lot of the time. not every character has been, but a lot have been. And we just got a big nerf on a lot of key characters uh, that were really shaking up the meta. So that's really changed, too. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see. But the other thing I think, like, the, there was a, a a comment that was made on a podcast that I listen to from time to time. The Wave, Wave Dash podcast is made by That Blasted Salami. He's a... Tekken community member, fighting game community member. He plays other games too, but yeah. Um, he was talking about Kunimitsu and her design and how she seems to be a little bit different from other Tekken characters and that she's designed where like her combos and stuff 
make you decide between getting wall carry, getting damage, getting good Oki, making you make decisions in the moment. And I think Lydia has the opportunity to be another good. He was saying that, I should say, because he thinks it's like how they're testing out Tekken 8. A lot of times in fighting games, the last DLC, the last patches are them testing out ideas if they want to do a sequel for things they might want to try in the sequel. That makes sense. Yeah. And I think Lydia is a good example of that, too. Maybe not necessarily in the same way, because I don't know her combo routes. I don't know really how she works yet, but at least visually and at the most basic level mechanically, like the with the parries, the the uh, the way that they animate, the way that they work, the way that. Uh, all of her little kit interacts with itself. Her stance changes, all that kind of thing might be an indicator of where Tekken 8 is going. And I'm all for it. So. Yeah, she's very fun to fight. Um, she's she's very cool to look at. All in all, it's a really great um, it's a really great uh, addition for the game that is, in my opinion, chock full of characters that's got that have a lot to look at and a lot to digest on and yeah. a lot to chew on. So. Make sure you definitely check that out. Um, we'll put we'll put a link in the show notes uh, for for like uh, just some random YouTube video where you can go check out her moves. Um, but she's very, very cool. Tekken. We like Tekken. Yeah. So I think we probably have to talk about the Snyder Cut, right? You can talk about it. I, I So let me start off. We're going to talk about the Snyder Cut, which means Chris is going to talk about it and I'm going to pretend to care. Uh, <laughs> I don't like comic book movies uh i really like comic books up to a certain point like i i really like a lot of 70s to even 2000s era comics like a little bit of stuff that goes beyond but marvel movies for me are okay i think a lot of the times they're just stories i've seen before but retold they're not made for me is what i always say about them Right. When someone yeah. says to me, Civil War was my favorite movie of the year. I'm like, that's nice. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's that's <laughs> it's an inoffensive statement to me. I don't care. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. Um, so right now would be a good time to mention that if you have not seen the Snyder Cut and you care about spoilers, bow out. If you care is, about it, the Snyder Cut, if you care about spoilers and you still haven't watched the Snyder Cut, you're obviously just pretending for clout. Yes, that's right. <laughs> right. You're just clout chasing with your with your fandom, which is something that Zack Snyder really fucking loves to do, especially with this fucking film. Let me yeah. tell you. Uh, so spoiler alert um, until the end of the episode for the Snyder Cut. I think everybody has a different experience with comic books. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's got their or their own origin story with it why did you start reading comic books what was your first comic book that you read um who is your favorite superhero right everybody's got a different take on that and so as such i think that comic books and superheroes in general mean something very different to the individual person that said I think that there are some undeniable qualities about certain characters um, that are written in a way that sort of stand out as things that should not change or deviate from. Um, And 
Zack Snyder is really good at subverting all of that. Um, <laughs> all right. Before before we head on, because that, that tells me basically where this is going. The Snyder cut is basically a fan demanded meme. So yeah. Justice Justice if, League is a film. Go ahead. If somehow you've not heard of the Snyder cut, right? Like this is the result of two things. Number one, Justice League being so offensively terrible, right? Offensively terrible that people were just mad because they had every right to be. And two, COVID-19 because Warner Brothers was like, what the fuck are we going to put out? <laughs> so. Yeah. So uh, not, I almost said Joss Whedon, even though that's technically correct. Yeah. Uh, Zack Snyder. And then I almost said Dan Snyder, which is an entirely different person. Zack yeah. Snyder is a film director, an American film director that really likes comic books. He made the 300, which is a comic book. Uh, he's also very famous for making um, the I don't know what you want to call it. You're like starting kind of the DC universe. DCEU is what they call yeah. it with Man of Steel. He made Watchmen. Watchmen. Uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake that he made that I really do not like. Yeah, Watchmen was not offensively terrible. The Dawn of the Dead's remakes is okay. I, I didn't have an issue with it. Uh, I think it's just to very tonally different than the original. But um, for another episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about Zack Snyder. It ranges from the incredibly offensive to the just kind of blase, but... Uh, yeah and so he made man of steel which is a really shitty superman movie he made uh batman versus superman which is a very shitty shitty batman and superman movie my father who has notoriously terrible taste once told me it was the worst thing he'd ever seen this is a man that said he liked suicide squad so oh. <laughs> oh yeah uh that tells you exactly where that movie may fall so so uh, Scott decidedly not in favor of Zack Snyder's comic book movies. I actually I think the best comic book movie he made is probably Watchmen. And I yeah. find that movie to be OK. Watchmen's fine. Um, yeah. So tell us about Justice League. Tell us how we got to the Snyder cut before going off on it. Well, I mean, you know. People were mad that. Joss Whedon released what he released. And then, you know, there was a lot well, of drama with the cast. Yeah, let me let's let's give a little bit of background here, though, because I actually find this more interesting than the other stuff, because. Yeah, to briefly touch on the behind the scenes drama, right? Like Zack Snyder, unfortunately, had a very awful family tragedy that he had to step away from Justice League to, to take care of um, and to uh, allegedly you know, allegedly to his knowledge, it was just going to be Joss Whedon coming in to zip up a couple things. And then that was going to be that. And then we were going to eventually see Zack Snyder's justice league. Um, and then what ended up happening was WB likely saw a very opportune scenario for them to try and be MCU adjacent. And they took it. And um, there's a whole lot of cast drama that goes on alongside that. But the really great part is that, I like to envision, right? I like to imagine a WB executive seeing Zack Snyder's progress, we'll say 75% of the way through. Yeah. And he sees this screening and he has thoughts about it. But the important part is that he goes home that night and his kids, his kids are in the basement and his kids are watching Age of Ultron because mm -hmm. that's not on Blu ray now. And Zack Snyder. 
he's filming Justice League, the film that's going to rival the MCU and put the DCEU on the fucking map of all fandom nerddom, the entire scope and spectrum. And you've just watched the most depressing three and a half hours of superhero film you've ever seen in your life. Mm -hmm. And you go home and you watch Age of Ultron and you just think to yourself, fuck. Yeah. Because there is absolutely positively no way that this film ever competes with the Marvel Cinematic Universe in the state that it is in. And I think that's what Warner Brothers originally wanted. Yeah. So I, th- I think that it's probably a scenario of shitty studio executives that truly have no idea what they're looking at, probably placed where they are more in a bureaucratic focus than any like I don't think that the people get assigned to these types of things, these types of properties because they're inherently passionate about them. I think it's because they're like a dumping ground for people that aren't necessarily competent enough to make their own IPs. Well, my final final review of the Snyder cut is that it is, it is his edgy fan fiction realized, right? Um, I'm not talking about Zack Snyder. I'm talking about like the studio execs. Oh, well, Zack Snyder clearly has a hard on for Superman and Uh, a a way that is probably deserving of several sessions of therapy. But (laughs) (laughs) but anyway, I, I, I think that like that's probably how you end up with a situation like the theatrical cut where it's like, I don't know anything about what I'm doing but I know what makes the lowest common denominator happy in a typical movie. Yeah. So this is where we're going to end up. And well, now, and that is ahead. not to say that like, you know, I mean, like, like we, like we've said, like superhero films are fine. They're entertaining. They're passable. They're passable and entertaining in the same way that new star Wars is passable and entertaining. And that like, yo, you know, was, was I thrilled at the special effects and the action? Absolutely. But if I want to think beyond that, it starts to get a little weird. Right. Yeah. I think there's something to say in the vacuum of superhero movies in our in in the year of our Lord 2021 about allowing somebody to realize a vision. And the thing that I took away the most from the Snyder cut of Justice League was that it is far and away better than most of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on the merit that it has soul and it is not this overly manufactured product that is meant for selling toys. Right. right? Justice league in the state that it is currently in doesn't sell a fucking toy (laughs) period. Right. Right. There is nothing super about these heroes, nothing super about them. I do not like this weird thing that Zack Snyder does in his superhero movies where he almost wants to make them like a reality television show for superheroes if they were real. Today, I watched Red Letter Media's coverage in their their review of the Snyder Cut. And one thing that they mentioned that I think is very 
apparent in his films that I want to quote here is that Zack Snyder doesn't care about the people, the normal people. He doesn't care about normal people in his superhero movies. He is solely focused on the heroes. And you can see this evidenced by watching the theatrical cut and then the Snyder cut back to back. And there's the parts in the end where they're fighting Steppenwolf and those entire scenes about rescuing the family that Superman hears out all of a sudden. Right. And he leaves the fight just to go rescue this family. That's nowhere in the film. Right. Because Zack Snyder does not give a crap about regular people. Um, evidenced also by the, the general Zod fight and almost sort of self-memed in Batman versus Superman, where the driving motivation for Batman's hatred of Superman is the normal people. Right. So I think that I think that it's interesting that it's that it's his vision realized. Um, I, I am the heroes don't inspire. And all in all, you know, I think that I just don't think he understands what makes the Justice League cool. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is less of a critique about the movie and more of a critique about Zack Snyder's interpretation of it. Right. Because these heroes and these characters, you know, different takes on them are not strange to the comic book microcosm, right? Um, there are offshoots and side stories and non-canon and out-of-universe stuff that happens constantly all the time that gets released under the guise of special events or crossover events or what have you, you know, that's considered non-canon all the time. So this is less about something like, well, he didn't talk about the effect that the Riddler had on his problem solving skills. So it's really not as close to the we're sort of beyond that. And I sort of feel like that was the popular thing to do back when comic book movies started coming out was to nitpick how accurate they were to the source material from like a beat perspective. Right. Mm -hmm. Does Batman's parents get get killed? Do Batman do Batman's parents get killed the right way? Does he find the Batmobile the way he does in the comics? Whatever, right? I think at this point it's gotten to uh, sort of a crossroads where I sort of like don't give a shit about that stuff, and I haven't for a while, and I am more interested in seeing if whoever is putting this film together understands exactly what makes these characters cool and why they are interesting. Right. Which is something that I think to use Batman as a specific example, as much as I dislike a lot of what Christopher Nolan did with his Batman movies from aesthetic storytelling and just general filmmaking perspective. I appreciate that he understood what made Batman Batman. Right. In a way that not only does Zack Snyder not understand what makes Batman Batman, but he doesn't understand what makes Superman Superman. He does not understand what makes heroes super beyond the feeling of they're just like you. They have feelings and emotions just like you do, which the last person that I personally want to empathize with is fucking Superman. Because he's goddamn Superman and he's supposed to save me, right? I'm not supposed to be, be able to understand the grief that he is going through. He's a metahuman, 
I personally could never understand that, right? So the Snyder Cut represents what I think Zack Snyder wanted to do with the Justice League in the same way that you might say Alan Moore got to do what he wanted to do with Batman during the Court of Owls and Death of the Family, right? Those two very recent and highly regarded storylines of, of the Batman comic book proper. Mm-hmm. It is still a very, very bad movie. Yeah. Because he fundamentally does not understand what makes the Justice League cool on a uh, togetherness basis. He does not understand what makes them cool on an individual basis. Um, and I'm not talking about the movie, right? I'm talking about the adaptation of the characters, right? The movie itself is gorgeous. Um, it's filmed beautifully. It's got an awful drab color palette, as all of his movies do. But it looks much cooler, and it is paced much better than Joss Whedon's Justice League is. Um, there's a lot more attention paid to the characters, which I respect. But attention paid to the characters for the purpose of telling a story within a singular film that you want to tell is not the same as adapting a character from its source material and that's what I'm talking about here. So I want to ask you, Scott, and by proxy, the audience, in your opinion, why is Batman cool? And why does he deserve to stand alongside the Justice League with all these metahumans? Well, first of all, I'm going to disagree. I don't think Christopher Nolan understood Batman very well either. Oh, fair There's enough. Part of the reason I don't really like a lot of his movies, uh, well, his Batman movies, I mean, specifically, I love his directing i like sure. christopher nolan but right anyway to me batman is a cool character because he along with many so dc is known uh, by an adage that is a flip side of a marvel adage there this is the way internet nerds used to explain themselves uh to other fans they would say dc is about uh gods uh acting like uh humans and uh marvel is about uh, humans acting like gods or maybe it's vice versa right but, but the basic gist is the dc characters are not very human yeah they're extraordinarily powerful right and the world rotates itself around their actions and their behaviors yeah i mean In green marvel, lantern itself he's the he protects the quadrant from this quasi like you know board of directors that nobody's ever seen yeah so the green lantern superman like one of my favorite superman panels is that in all-star superman he stops his routine he's dying from radiation or whatever he stops his routine to stop a, a girl from jumping off a roof he knows what every human being conceivably on the planet is doing at once right 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 it's not a normal human's behavior contrast that with spider-man who's a normal boy with normal boy problems that also has this uh juggle superhero bullshit right yep batman is cool because he represents the uncompromising nature of justice the ability of a man to not give up the ingenuity of man right like he's the world's greatest detective he deserves to stand alongside the justice league because of his uncompromising moral code, his innate genius even beyond 
the many super geniuses that inhabit the team and his unflinching dedication to protecting the planet like the uh, the Lazarus codes, one of the big storylines of how he's created a contingency that should any Justice League member, including himself, go rogue exactly how to eliminate them, which causes strain with him and the team. He is the he is in many ways the foil to Superman, who is has the easy job of being the basically the face, the poster boy. Batman is the man who does the things that needs to be done. So one of my biggest gripes with the Justice League film in the Snyder Cut specifically I'm referring to um, is that Batman is absolutely none of these things. Um, And I think a good representation and indication to what I'm talking about here is just how they resurrect Superman which is not too far off from the way that Joss Whedon did it. So if you saw the Joss Whedon cut, you will know that they basically had Flash run really fast and electrify a mother box as it touched the amniotic fluid inside of the ship that they put Superman's dead body in, and then that was going to bring him back to life, right? That is no different from a, a plot beat perspective in the Snyder cut, right? Except for... It is more egregious how much of a fucking idiot Zack Snyder's Batman is and how much he has abandoned all of these things that make him Batman and that allow him to stand next to the Justice League on parallel and in some cases on an even higher pedestal, as you mentioned, than some of these metahumans that are on this team alongside him, right? He just kind of decides, like, he's just like, well, we have to try it. And everybody's like, well, maybe it won't work. And he's like, but you don't fucking understand. We have to try this. And everybody's like, yeah, but what if it doesn't work? And he's like, no, we have to try. And like, I looked at Ashley and I was like, like my wife. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about, right? The Batman and. The, the, like the Batman, as I see it, would have already had the calculations to prove that he was going to be right. He would have shown you the simulations that he had brother I run right while mm-hmm. you were all sitting here bickering about it. He would have provided all of the backup and the and, and, and the data and the know how to show you like, look, here's what you don't understand. This is what we're working with. This is what we're up against. This is why it's probably going to work. But instead, he's just kind of reduced to this. Eh, we really don't have any other choice. So let's go for it in this moment. Right. And something something even as simple as just saying like, well, Batman isn't this, you know, ultra intellectual, super calculated detective who is 10 steps ahead of you. Even if you think you're already 10 steps ahead, he's 10 steps ahead of you even. Right. He's just a guy that really fucking likes Superman and is like, look, there's no gadget on the planet that I could test with Darkseid with. We need this motherfucker. And it just makes it makes the relationship between Batman and Superman for me very, very boring, because that to me is what is at the core of what makes the Justice League interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the Justice League persona in general is the idea that these people that had stood alone 
like literally logistically in their own comic books and like in universe, right? They they're lonely islands of people. They could come together and have people that share a common cause. It's literally fellowship. Superman trusts Batman with kryptonite. He's like, you if I something happens to me, Batman, you need to be the one that kills me. Here's a kryptonite ring or whatever form it takes in. You know what I mean? The different iterations of that interaction. They have a, a shared bond of friendship and trust. And then you see some of the clips like Marvel at least gets this part really well of like. People want to like characters they're expected to root for. If your characters are just kind of a bunch of sad sacks with not a lot of redeeming qualities, like Man of Steel got a lot of shit, rightly so, because Superman is kind of goes ape shit in the city and like lets thousands of people die and Batman's killing people and Batman versus Superman. And like, there's nothing to root for really. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, beyond they're literally the protagonists. They're not very likable people. Yeah. Batman and Superman are likable. I've said this before, like Superman is, is interesting at all. I know a lot of people think he's boring because he is so powerful that he never has to compromise, which is an interesting way to write a character. Superman doesn't have to think, well, I, I could let the villain go or, you know what I mean, and save the people or capture the villain and whatever. He can do them all. That's what's interesting about him. You know what I mean? Yeah, so when you right. have these compromises of like I, one thing I know is they send Superman away so he can't fight Steppenwolf. So that the movie can happen. It's like, what? Like, what's even why would you do this then? Why not just have him revive later or something? Yeah, well, that that's that's one of the things that they do. Like like I mentioned in, in the Joss Whedon version is they do that. And um, and it's actually kind of interesting how they wrap it up in the Snyder cut because. It, Superman actually fails, right? Like mm-hmm. at the at the end of the movie, the way that it wraps up is that um like well the end of the the way that the main plot line wraps up is that they end up bringing superman back and he's all mad and they fight and then lois lane takes him to see his old house in kansas and then he's like oh okay i remember who i am now and then like the justice league is fighting steppenwolf and right as steppenwolf is about to clobber cyborg he brings his big old axe down on him and then superman steps in front of it and he blocks the axe and he says some kind of cheeky line and they start to rumble but at the end of all of that Right. We see this portal open up with Darkseid looking into it and they lose. And Darkseid, like apocalypse happens. The mother, the mother boxes fuse. Darkseid's coming. This big fucking thing happens. And right before it reaches the flash, this big wave that shoots out from it, he stops time and he kind of goes back in time and makes sure that Superman and Cyborg can complete their mission. And then they kill Steppenwolf and everything's all good. So, you know. Again, with the time travel trope, it's fine. It's a very common thing in the Flash, which uh, every, I think they're, ev- everybody's I think they're directly. Go ahead, there, no, go ahead. Why everybody's going to find out sooner or later because the Flash movie is based on Flashpoint. So, yeah, I was about to say, I think they're directly referencing Flashpoint and uh, the most recent confrontation that ended with Bruce Wayne's death against Darkseid in the comics. Yeah. You know what I mean? I so, think good. Well, so, yeah, that's, you know, that's at least, well, I don't know, because he's is not green, doing it anymore. So we'll see. Is, is the Green Lantern even in this movie? Uh, a Green Lantern is, but for like a couple seconds just to get I, you. I know Martian Manhunter shows up for a few seconds, but it's the most fucking confusing thing on the planet. But like they're not, <laughs> oh 
Yeah, they're not doing a the Zack Snyder's not doing another one. So, you know, it is what it is unless, you know, unless people put enough hashtags out there, maybe maybe he'll get another one. But um yeah, I mean, it's a mess. It's not a good movie. Um it's it's not a good well, it's not a good Justice League movie. It's not a good adaptation of these characters. It is a better film than the Joss Whedon version by a country mile. Um if you do not like Zack Snyder's self-indulgent tendencies, a la like these really um sort of symbolic scenes of kind of like the hallelujah scene in watchmen like there's a scene where aquaman leaves a village that he was helping and he swims away and for literally like three whole minutes there's like this hymn that these village people sing that i guess is about him but it goes on for a for a minute after aquaman's gone and bruce just kind of sits there and listens to it and it's just like, yeah, all right. You know, it's, it, he does it with every character. Every character's got a music video about them at some point across this film. So if you don't like that sort of like self-indulgent shit, you might not really like Justice League. But ultimately, it is a very much better film than, than Joss Whedon's version. The epilogue should have just been completely lopped off of it. And I retain that if if we can get this out of letting... Zack Snyder, whose really only intention with these characters was to write his own edgy fan fiction. If we can get this out of that, which is a really a fine movie. I just really wonder what we could get with somebody that takes it a little bit more seriously. Right. Personally, it's just my. Yeah. Well, it's it's one of the things that we say all the time, like. The adaptation of a thing, something getting a movie, something getting a video game, whatever, is usually inherently started with the idea that it is a way to capitalize on engagement from another medium and draw money from people that already like a thing. And that's why you end up with directors that don't care, that yeah. don't understand it, is how you end up with new Star Trek, it's how you end up with new Star Wars. People that don't, it's not a passion project for everybody involved that has a critical piece in landing it. It is very clearly a passion project for Zack Snyder. Yes. Wh whether or not we can agree with his decisions. Right. Sure. Right. But it's not. It, it's not a there's not a clean landing waiting for us at the end of this. Right. 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 Let's make and a new Star Wars trilogy, not plan any of it out and just give it to JJ. Right. Yes. Like what right. a great idea that could never possibly go wrong. Let's all pat <laughs> ourselves on the back. Right. And honestly, man, like that's why I say, like, I think the Snyder Cut is very much worth watching. I think it is very much worth somebody's time if if it interests you. Um, but just do not expect the infinity war of DC characters, as it were, something that's going to be highly consumable, something that's just going to hit everybody's tickly spot. This is a, a very purposeful movie with very clear and intentional direction. And it is Zack Snyder's full vision realized. There's no doubt about that.
but it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It sure was. <laughs> and speaking of the best of times, we do have a new show coming up this week. Do we not? Oh, what is it? I don't is it know. A secret? I don't know. Is it a secret, Scott? What are you showing me on this week? I think I'm showing you on my favorite rapper. One metal face slash fingers doom. Is that Ooh. right? Yeah, that is right. I cannot wait for this one, dude, because as somebody that does not listen to like any hip hop, I just I really don't know what to expect. I think you're going to like it. I think I'm I'm very confident in this one. This well, this one barely barely needs me to do anything. Well, I think we'll find out. And I think you all will find out this coming Friday when we release our new show on MF Doom. Uh, but before that, don't forget, you can find us at all of the socials on Twitter, Instagram, at The Many Folds. You can find King of the Shill at TheManyFolds.com, as well as all of your other podcast places like Spotify, Apple, TuneIn, Stitcher, Amazon, Google, all the fucking podcast places. We got it everywhere. We even have our episodes uploaded to YouTube at YouTube.com slash user slash The Many Folds. So if you're somebody that's agnostic on platforms and you don't don't like your web browser but you like your youtube app we're there too scott what's your favorite mf doom song oh that's mean uh curls listen to curls before friday yeah all right we're out of here see you scott see you